Hello and welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with AEI President Robert Doerr. We'll be your Banter co-hosts. Each week, we'll take you inside our think tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers about today's pressing policy issues. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome back to Banter. Joining us this week for his annual episode with us wrapping up the Supreme Court term is Adam White, who's a senior fellow with us here at AEI. He studies the Supreme Court, the administrative state, and American constitutionalism. He also co-directs the Scalia Law Schools Center for the Study of the Administrative State. Before joining us at AEI, Adam practiced constitutional administrative law, and in 2021, he served on the Presidential Commission on the Supreme Court. Thanks for joining us again, Adam. Thanks, Phoebe. Thanks, Robert. It's great to be back. We love having Adam on the show, especially now in the wake of the the court's term and all these really important decisions that came down in a flurry of activity and excitement, some things that people have been looking forward to hearing about and, and, and seeing these decisions for a long time. So I have I have a statement to make about the affirmative action case. So in the history of getting our country set up right, consistent with the Declaration of Independence, there is the Declaration of Independence. There's the 14th Amendment. There's the Harlan dissent in the Plessy case. There's the Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech. There's the Civil Rights Act. There's the Voting Rights Act. And there's the Roberts and the Thomas opinions. Mm -hmm. Don't you think that those opinions rank with those other documents in our history as being seminal moments? Yes, I think I do agree with that, actually. With the court's judgment in, in particular, Justice Thomas's opinion is very, very eloquent, and I think the culmination of his life's work. And for Chief Justice Roberts, too, this is an issue he's focused on throughout his time on the court. And of course, this was going to be a difficult and divisive case. And I think Justice Chief Justice Roberts' majority opinion did justice to the subject, so to speak. And it's not the end of the story. It never is. But I do think it's a turning point. And so I will remind you all that when I had Attorney General Barr out to our conference in Colorado a couple of years ago, I quoted Justice Harlan's words about our Constitution is colorblind. And just tell us, from a, from a legal eagle perspective like you, you know, the big law schools, and is, is it true that Justice Harlan's dissent in that case and those words are, I mean, I think they're quoted in the opinion, Maybe 50 times. Yeah. Is that is it deserving of that respect? Absolutely. It was the greatest, greatest dissent in American history. Justice Harlan is a fascinating character. I reviewed a biography of his last summer. He was on the Supreme Court, the embodiment of the Republican Revolution, the original Republican Revolution, a recognition that government needed to treat all people equally. His, his, his Plessy dissent both did justice to the past and inspired future generations. And I should also say those words were the clarion call of the Justice Department and the civil rights movement in the early 1960s. The Constitution is colorblind. This is what we want to achieve. Something happened after that that got us off the the road. And last question on this. I can't remember. Are are you Harvard or Yale Law School? (laughs) Harvard Law School. (laughs) I'm so hurt. So you (laughs) should deserve some blame because that, I mean, the university really did not acquit itself well in this chapter of its history. Yeah, it was shameful. The documents that came out of the Harvard litigation, to the great credit of Consovoy and McCarthy, the the legal team with, with Ed Bloom, they were shameful in the way they characterized Asian American applicants in really, really 
bigoted terms. And and by the way, the, they would say, well, we didn't intend it that way. Well, that actually is the worst part of it, that they felt free to, mm. to really denigrate Asian-American applicants as having sort of no personality, not being diverse. It was terrible. I think it really exemplified the problems that had, that had, had, had grown throughout decades of this. I, one of the challenges of these cases is that, first of all, America's history on race is so ugly in its early generations, and we had to fight a civil war to end slavery. And the years immediately following the Civil War are very complicated. The the same generation that won that war and enacted the 14th Amendment and enacted the original Civil Rights Act also did create things like the Freedmen's Bureau, knowing that the country had to do a lot to repair the, the, the awful, brutal sins of slavery. Abraham Lincoln, his second inaugural that our, our colleague Diana Shaw writes so eloquently mm-hmm. about, made clear that slavery was the ugly legacy of the North and South alike as one unified country. And we had to do a lot to, to, to atone for those sins in the immediate after war, aftermath of the Civil War. But it's another thing to say that we need to perpetuate forever sort of a caste-based system of racial classifications in the law. Chief Justice Roberts, above all, was uncomfortable with that, and, and I'm grateful that, that the court finally recognized that you couldn't square this in modern times with the original meaning of the 14th Amendment or the meaning of the Civil Rights Act they could have, they could have done it by or with the, the, the spirit of the Declaration of Independence. Phoebe, before we go on mm-hmm. to another case, do you want to comment or ask on about affirmative the, action? Yeah. yeah, yeah. The court's decision on affirmative action previously, or kind of that precedent, was the bedrock of in a lot of like corporate or other settings, kind of upholding DEI requirements. And now those are going to come under different kinds of scrutiny. Yeah. I know that's that's different, but I'm curious how you think about that as kind of the next frontier of the issue. It's it is a little bit over the horizon still. If the Supreme Court had resolve these cases explicitly under the terms of the text of the Civil Rights Act, that would have been even more front and center because it covers, you know, everything beyond education as well, employment and so on. And yes, this interpretation of the 14th Amendment does mean that the interpretation of the Civil Rights Act might change as well. But I think those issues are slightly further over the road, over the horizon. They're going to be very, very fact-sensitive. We're going to have a lot of litigation now that's very, Mm -hmm. very fact-sensitive. And so I don't think everything is going to be swept away in a moment. But but now you're going to have some movement. You're going to have some movement in that direction. So just to be clear on this, the the key one key ingredient to the Harvard and UNC cases was they took federal money. Yeah, right. Corporations don't necessarily take federal money. No, but corporate employment decisions are subject to the Civil Rights Act right. and mm-hmm. so on. Can yeah. I say one more thing about the affirmative action yeah. case? Yeah. In this piece for the Dispatch, I said that this decision kind of closes the door in many ways on the the, the early era of the of the conservative legal movement. Affirmative action and abortion were two of the central issues. Mm-hmm. I'd broaden affirmative action into sort of race-based distinctions in the law. Those were two of the core issues that energized the original conservative legal movement. But the other similarity I see between the affirmative action case and Dobbs and also the Second Amendment case, Heller, from now, mm-hmm. you know, nearly 20 years ago, is that in each of those cases, the Roberts Court announced a very broad principle they knew that there's going to be follow-up litigation over gun regulations, abortion regulations, and so on, and now affirmative action policies. But they didn't try to prejudge all of those issues. They know that a lot of them are going to be out there. These were cases where the Roberts Court just announced a very broad ruling, knowing that a lot of dust is going to settle in its aftermath. 
Mm-hmm. Speaking of the dust in the afterlife, I was just I had this thought as I was walking home last night that if if the universities wanted to continue to provide an advantage for some populations, populations that struggle for various means, could they, under the law that as it now exists post the decision, give a put in their their emissions criteria a plus? if you're a product of a single-parent family. Yeah, I think so. And by the way, I think that's going to be a lot of litigation is Mm -hmm. to what extent are are these other criteria sort of meant genuinely on their own terms, and to what extent are they just rough proxies to, to do race balancing again? But I think not only could universities do those other proxies, I think they should, actually. I, I, I really do. I for not to ramble on too much, I know this is not a three-hour podcast, yeah. but but universities are not just strict meritocracies, and they shouldn't be. They are learning communities, and so I think it's important for schools to prioritize diversity. I'm not against legacy admits. I'm not against athletics. I went to a Big Ten school. How could I be against athletics? But they can't. No single criterion can be the end-all, be-all, and so we want to get. Ri- we we can't constitutionally have race-based discrimination, but I think anything the universities can do to, to really prioritize diversity across the board is a good thing. But the most eloquent aspects of the opinions was the was the the the, the court's comments about the 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 stereotyping that yeah. goes with mm-hmm. race-based uh, determinations, and and that race really means nothing yeah. about someone's character or, or background or history. But if you were to say, for instance, that someone who achieves a certain fairly high level of academic or other kind of achievement, and they've also overcome the, the real hardship, not a stereotypical hardship, but the real mm-hmm. hardship of growing up without an active and involved parent there in the household full time, yeah. you could say, well, here, here, that. And I think that the Justice Roberts makes that clear. It has to be related to that person's individual experience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and the, the by the way, the other rhetoric that was just, in my opinion, amazingly compelling was how the Harvard classifications put all these racial and ethnic groups into one group yeah. and said they're all the same. Yeah. I mean it was the worst kind of stereotyping. And and so yeah, I think it was uh, they really they hit it out of the ballpark. And okay, so now that we've talked about that one, there is in the wor- in the conservative world a little disappointment among some about another case involving race. Yeah. And that is the Alabama apportionment case where the court said you know, maybe we don't like basing decisions based on race, but something happened here in Alabama where all the black Democratic voters were put into one district so that the only one member of the congressional delegation from Alabama would be a Democrat and African-American, it turns out. And that seems a little bit contrary to the, to the updated civil rights statute, yeah. which passed in 1982 by an overwhelming majority and was signed by Ronald Reagan. Yeah. And Roberts made that very clear. What say you about that one? A couple of years ago, the Roberts Court rejected a, a, a call for the court to start policing political gerrymanders. So not race-based gerrymanders, but partisan gerrymanders that would entrench Republicans or Democrats. And the Roberts Court said, you know, there's no constitutional or statutory lines we can enforce here. Like, you're just asking us to sort of make up laws. We go, we're not going to do that. But in this case, by contrast, you do have the Civil Rights Act, and you do have like a, a history, not an ancient history, a recent history, of, of legislatures 
trying to trying to reduce the power of black voters and other groups through districting lines. I don't know gerrymandering is like the oldest story in American democracy, but race-based gerrymanders do have like a, a, re, a still fairly recent and really poisonous legacy in American politics. And the Civil Rights Act was enacted to prevent that kind of thing. I, I have to admit, this is not one of the cases I followed as closely as the others. Even on the election case, I was more focused on Moore versus Harper, the independent state legislature case. I, this case didn't strike me as like obviously wrong at all. It's a really difficult balance. On the one hand, if you spread, if a legislature spreads, say, black black vote black votes off across many districts, well, it disperses their power, dilutes their power, uh, their votes. On the other hand, if you put them all in one district, then they get, you know, they might vote for for one legislator. So where do you draw, like, what's the perfect Goldilocks balance in the middle? I don't know. I'm uncomfortable having now just spent 30 seconds assuming that all black voters are going to vote in the same direction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But this, the fact is that state legislatures often have tried to tr- divide people up among racial lines, and the Civil Rights Act was enacted to prevent that. Mm-hmm. And Justice Chief Justice Roberts got Justice Kavanaugh to join him in that yeah. opinion, so it, it had that aspect to it. How do you react to the sort of the, the, the New York Times reaction of, oh, my God, we can't believe it. The Roberts Court did a reasonable thing. Isn't that kind of hard to listen to? Yeah, they'll forget it by tomorrow, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just by the way, aren't we talking a lot about Chief Justice Roberts here? Yes, I thought a yes. year ago yes. I could have sworn I was you told. You did call it. Yeah. 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 I know. You don't make a lot of friends by, <laughs> on the right or the left by saying nice things about Chief Justice Roberts. But I think one of the real like, clear themes of this year's term was Chief Justice Roberts clearly is the Chief Justice. He probably asserts himself a little bit, a lot, as the Chief Justice assigning himself these opinions. But he was as central to the court's work as anybody. Kavanaugh was in the majority 1% of the time more than Roberts. It was like 96 to 95%. But, but Roberts, once again, really is the, the most institutionally significant justice, and I expect that to continue to be the case. And maybe the most important leader in America for the last 25 years. I mean, it's just not that the court wants to be that important in the constitutional system, but he's been around for a long time. He keeps doing his job, doing it well. I'm, I'm very impressed by his leadership skills and his writing and his judgment. And I, you know, I, I guess there, I know there are critics on both sides, but um, mm-hmm. that's a sign of leadership sometimes. Yeah. How do you think about, I mean, I, I feel like the impression that he was less powerful comes from the sense that he wanted to take longer to make such dramatic decisions and then they happened pretty quickly. Yeah. What's your read of kind of like how he has thought about that over the past few years? Yeah, I th- actually, that's a great way of putting it, Phoebe. I think that what separates Roberts from the others is in many ways just his sense of pace. And that goes in terms of overturning precedent. It also goes in terms of, you know, Chief Justice Roberts really disagreeing with his colleagues about nation about what's called like the shadow docket, mm-hmm. where the court is able to off to get grant relief at the front end of a case, not at the end, in order to freeze things while the case is pending. He's been very, very wary of that. He's, he's gone along with it sometimes, but he's been slower than others. And so I tend to think of his differences with other conservatives and actually the court as a whole, often in terms of pacing. Mm-hmm. One other thing about, about Roberts is that, oh, now I lost it. I guess I, I ran out of Roberts talk. <laughs> yeah, the, the pacing question is tricky because that does sort of say he's going to get there, he's just going to take f- ten, five more years or yeah. ten more years. And, yeah. and if, the, if the thing is constitutionally strong, mm-hmm. why wait? It uh, is. It is, but the court—the court is not just like a free-floating constitutional faculty club, right? They're—they're they're there to decide cases and controversies, mm-hmm. and 
the the work of a court is 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 as much procedural as it is anything else. The thing I was going to say about Roberts that I forgot was, you know, James Madison famously says in The Federalist that, you know, ambition in our system of checks and balances, ambition will counteract ambition. The interest of the man must be attached to the rights of the place. And really nobody in government embodies that now more than a Chief Justice. Not just Chief Justice Roberts, but but especially Chief Justice Roberts. You don't have the sort of the partisan affiliations that mitigate those institutional roles for the president and members of Congress. The Chief Justice of the United States, his office, his name is on the door, right? It's the Roberts Court, the Rehnquist Court. Mm-hmm. And and I think that Roberts really exemplifies, for better and for worse, the, uh, the, the institutional nature of the office. So let's now talk about the other voting and elections case, the, the state legislature having the sole discretion to decide all voting issues yeah. and, 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 and keeping the state courts out of it. Yeah. Some people were hoping that that would go that way to, to protect red state or blue state state legislatures from the oversight of their state courts. Mm-hmm. Justice Roberts, again, with a pretty, I think with Kavanaugh as well, I think mm-hmm. he had Kavanaugh with him, said no, that the, 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 the state legislature doesn't have the sole, sole judgment here and that isn't, isn't likely to be held accountable, or is it okay to be held accountable by the overriding state constitutional law and the, and the role of the state judges? Yeah. What did you think about that opinion? Well, I agreed with it. I, the, to be clear, the Constitution says that when it comes to drawing district lines and appointing electors in presidential elections, it's the state legislatures that do it. It says state legislatures right there, not state courts. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or the states. Or the states. That's mm-hmm. right. State legislatures. That said, the U.S. Constitution didn't create the state legislatures. It, it takes them as it gets them. And state legislatures are creatures of their own state constitutional governments. And so I, I have to admit, instinctually, I was sort of wary of the argument that somehow the U.S. Constitution, you know, wrought all kinds of change on internal state processes, too, and that it sort of immunized state legislatures from ordinary judicial review. But I'm no fool. I know that sometimes a judge can go overboard, too, and say, well, I'm just interpreting the law, but actually they're really making the law. Mm-hmm. And what I liked about the, the, the court's opinion in Moore versus Harper is they said, no, the state legislature, when it draws district lines, is subject to all the normal substantive and procedural limits of its state constitution, including ordinary judicial review. But the Roberts Court giveth, the Roberts Court taketh away. They said, listen, state courts, we're not suckers here. If you step out of your your ordinary judicial role and try to undertake you know, substantive decision making here, and they didn't actually say what the limits are then the federal courts are going to be here to police that too. That's actually a really significant statement that now federal courts are going to be policing state courts and be interpreting state law to see if the state courts went too far. That could actually become a big, big deal, maybe even a bigger deal than the court intended. But I liked the way that the Roberts Court approached that. Yeah, I did too. I, I like that too because it, it preserved the role of the federal judiciary and the Supreme Court. Justice Thomas really didn't like it mm-hmm. in his dissent and, and said, oh, this is going to thrust us into all kinds of controversies that now we're going to figure have to figure that out. Yeah. And so there's that. But I also I'm just wondering if I've got my history wrong by saying that was he also is he also saying, therefore, what we did in Bush versus Gore. That's what we did in Bush versus Gore, isn't it? Yeah, basic. I think so. Yes. Yes. That's fair. Yeah, they, the Supreme Court came in and mm-hmm. said, "We're going to have to decide this for you yeah. because you're all you're all a mess." And they were a mess. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, and I, I mean, not to sort of barrel. I don't know if you'd be about to say, say something. I don't mean to barrel over this, but 
when lawyers like me think about the separation of powers and federalism, it's like pretty clear lines. You're federal and state, you got three branches of government. But the fact is, our constitutional system has some extremely important parts that require an interplay of those things. And you have parts of state government carrying out federal obligations. You know, the state legislatures are administering a federal federal elections. Uh, and at the end of the day, you can't avoid that fact that they're carrying out a federal power and therefore some kind of federal oversight, both in the legislature, both in Congress and uh, and the courts, is, is, is inevitable and, and probably a good thing within limits. Mm-hmm. Th- Thomas's arguments were, they were fair. I mean, the state, the Constitution does say legislature. And there is a risk that that the that the Roberts's exception is going to swallow the rule, right? Mm-hmm. That the, the state courts really will be will, really will be running things. So we're going to have to see how this plays out. Okay. So the next one is the student debt case. Yep. And an, an, another, I think, Roberts opinion, right? Right. right yeah. Right. That opinion too. Yeah. And the first question I have to ask is for those who didn't read the opinion really closely. I know you did, Phoebe. Mm-hmm. But the most interesting legitimate complaint, in my opinion, mm-hmm. from the dissent was the standing issue. Yeah. And and they, you know, Robert said, no, this Missouri, what, what, what was it? It's called Moela. It was Moela, which is a, so this sort of entity created by the state. Yeah. To, it, was a, it was a corporation the state chartered to service student loans. Which notably did not sue. Right. And could have, right. but didn't. But the state decided to sue, the state attorney general decided yeah. to sue on behalf of the state because MOLA was hurt. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so what, what say you about Justice Kagan's dissent on that on that score? It's a fair point. Again, the, the court isn't like a free-floating constitutional faculty club. They decide cases and controversies. And cases and controversies, as the court, and Scalia really helped pioneer this in the 90s, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the court interprets that to mean you have to have standing. You have to have an injury that's caused by the person you're suing and that can be remedied by the court. And so is Moela. They're not a party. It's not clear that any money was going to flow through to Missouri from this. Is Missouri really hurt? It's not, a, it's not an easy question at all. I thought the cleverest question at oral argument that put me on the side of, okay, Missouri has standing because of Moela, was I think somebody asked, maybe the, the U.S. Solicitor General, well, if Moela isn't part of the state, as you say it is, it isn't. Does that mean they can like make decisions that discriminate on the basis of races, race or sex, or they can they can like you know do things to stop people's free speech? And and the Solicitor General said, no, no, no. They they're still kind of an instrumentality of the state. And the same thing happened mm-hmm. over the years in litigation around Amtrak. That at the end of the day, the court I think just cut to the chase and said, listen, this is a state chartered corporation. Its exclusive responsibility is to carry out sort of to be an instrumentality of the state. That's good enough for purposes of standing. But this was not an easy question. And just to be clear, I think this the, the tell us. I hope you're going to agree with me on this. That the the strongest language in that case is the language about the need for Congress to do its job. Yeah. I mean, didn't they say this is Congress's role, the power of the purse? Yeah. Yeah, it is. First of all, apologies to anybody in the room or anybody who's listening who, like, lost out on their student loan forgiveness. <laughs> that's, sorry about that. But, but, no, that's right, that at the end of the day, I mean, Congress legislated a particular law for a particular purpose. And, yes, they said you could president can waive or modify. But as I think Justice Barrett said in her concurrence, you know, when the parents tell the babysitters, Here's, a, here's the credit card. Make sure the kids have fun. That doesn't mean take the kids to Disney World. Like you have to read statutes reasonably in their context. And 
whole, sort of wholesale waiver of billions of dollars of student loans. Mm-hmm. It just strains credulity that the Congress authorized the president to do that. The saddest part is seeing members of Congress, Senator Warren and others, saying the president needs to go do this. It's kind of pathetic to watch members of Congress, and this happens on both parties. It happened with the border wall when pre- under, under Trump's presidency. And watching members of Congress shovel their, their responsibility over to the president just to be you know, the, the, his cheering section. is. Although, quite notably, they quoted Speaker Pelosi oh, yeah. saying we don't have the power to do this. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that's was, in the opinion. Yeah, but I, my guess is she was against it before she was for it. I think yeah. President <laughs> Biden. Didn't President yeah. Biden yeah. say? Yeah, yeah. Uh, just as, by yeah. the way, in a very similar case, President Obama said, no, of course I can't just legalize millions yeah. of people who are here illegally, but, you know, some, sometimes they... Okay, so run. take us through, for our listeners, explain for them, don't let me explain it, that would be a terrible yeah. thing, <laughs> the Justice Kagan prodding of Justice Barrett on textualism yeah. and Justice Barrett's response. Just yeah. just tell us, using the word textualism, yeah. tell us what happened there. So this case was the latest of what we call the major questions doctrine cases. For the last few years, the Roberts Court has been very, very skeptical when agencies announce transformative, unprecedented, sweeping new policies that are nominally tied to old statutes. The court says when, when suddenly this agency discovers this, that it had this transformative power laying around, we're going to be skeptical of that. It's called the major questions doctrine. And critics of that doctrine, especially Justice Kagan, and say like the West Virginia case that had to do with climate policy, she says, this isn't textualism. She says, I thought we were all textualists here. Turns out I'm the only one because (laughs) you're all imposing your policy judgments on how to read this statute. And I'm a big fan of the major questions doctrine myself. I think it goes, it's not just the last few years. I used, when I was still a lawyer, I'd write briefs about it, citing cases from decades or earlier. So this doctrine has been around. It's, now it has a name. It's like, the, it's like the band that was around for 10 years and then became an overnight success. Kagan's criticism is very strong, though, that this does feel like a thumb on the scale of one side of a case rather than the other. And it's not about just looking at the words on the page wave or modify. That, it, that, that's how she says, that's what textualism is. You're reading all these other values into it. I thought Barrett's opinion was one of the most op- interesting op- opinions of the year because she basically is conceding that Kagan's initial criticism has some real bite. And she writes this opinion that's very detached. It's almost like she wrote a memo to herself, sort of sorting these issues out and then put it into the case, saying, the major questions doctrine for me is about context. I'm interpreting the text. This is textualism, but it's text informed by context. And for me, I'm not using this as a way to bring in the non-delegation doctrine or other sort of big picture constitutional issues. This is just about reading the text. Her opinion is very interesting. It was joined by none of the other conservative justices whose own opinions on this issue, this doctrine going back the last five years, really sound like something else. This is, I think I probably said in last year's podcast, Kagan is in many ways the most interesting justice because she's the first modern Democrat appointed justice who speaks textualist as a first language. And so when she gets in these cases, it's not just conservative textualism versus liberal living constitutionalism. She really can make arguments in textualist Mm -hmm. terms, which drives interesting intellectual wedges among the conservative justices. And this is a textbook example of it. And now we're going to see this play out between not just Barrett and Kagan, but also Barrett and the other conservatives about what the heck this major questions doctrine is. Mm -hmm. Uh, Notably, listeners, and I I point this out to you, Phoebe, Mm -hmm. because I have sort of a 
Jewish mother component relationship with you. <laughs> Justice Barrett. What a quote. Um, Justice Barrett, her, the analogy she used, you know uh, where I'm going with this? I think so. The analogy she used was all about a babysitter. Now, Justice yeah. Barrett has like seven kids, and uh-huh. she did a very, I think, natural, she used an analogy involving babysitters and parents. And yeah. and it was a very, I, I hate to say a parenting type thing. I was going to say motherly type yeah. thing too. But, <laughs> but it was, I liked it. And, and it, she extended it. She went on to length about it. Yeah. And no, I thought it was also a very well done, you know, and it was kind of a, you know, an mm-hmm. academic memo. Yeah. You've raised a point, and I want to tell you how I see this. And, but is it really? Does it really mean something that the other justices didn't sign it? I mean, if you write for the court and you write in your own opinion, do you, do people join concurrences? Yeah, in fact, on a lot of these cases involving the major questions doctrine, you'd have, say, Justice Gorsuch write a concurrence that Thomas would 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 join. Yeah, I, I thought it was interesting that no yeah. other justice. I wouldn't read too much into it, but I wouldn't read nothing into it. Yeah. By the way, the credit card example, to be fair, if that actually had happened and the babysitter had taken the kids to Disney World or whatever, yeah. and the parents had sued her to get the money back, you think the babysitter would have lost the case? I don't know. I, I mean, if the... If the well, if wait, wait, let's be clear so our listeners know. Yeah. What she said was if the parent leaves the house and says, here's a credit card, give the kids a good time. Yeah. And then she goes, the parent leaves, and the, the, the babysitter takes that to mean that I can take them to Disney World for two days. Yeah. And and come back that that no I think the babies would lose terribly she wasn't told to take the wasn't explicit and there's a whole context in their relationship yeah it was I thought she was fine on that it was hilarious well I, as as uh, the employer of as my, I was going to say your babysitters do that well you know I'm I'm just no they'd be my own kids I would be babysitting the other ones so yeah. anyway I digress okay we've talked about the caveats in Justice Roberts' opinion we talked about. What else, what else yeah. do you have, Phoebe? So I asked this question as someone who at, at Cornell one year, the only class on the Supreme Court that was offered was called the Supreme Court and Public Opinion, mm-hmm. which was very annoying to me. <laughs> yes. I yeah. don't share yeah. personal stories. Yeah. There you go. I yeah. didn't like that. I was like, why? Why, why do we have to focus on this? this shouldn't They shouldn't be together. Yeah. So that yes. leads me into my question about, I thought one of the most striking interesting things about this term was the inconsistency with which liberals kind of applied whether public opinion should matter. Like with Jobs last year and then with many other topics this term, there were a lot of decisions where, like the student debt one is a great example. Everyone wants their loans to be forgiven. But then on the affirmative action case, the public opinion is dramatically different. I hadn't actually realized until this term how how unpopular of a policy that is. So I know this probably seems kind of simplistic from a legal perspective, but I do think it's like something that needs to be explained to people. Like what should the relationship between public opinion and the court be? Well, I think the court should take the public's opinion seriously, but in the right way. The Supreme Court cases aren't popularity contests, so it doesn't matter, really, if the American people like a policy or don't like a policy. That's not what we're deciding these cases based on. But I think the court does need to take public opinion seriously in the, in the sense that like, we're a republic. Like the, the people's citizens matter, votes matter, public opinion does matter in the sense that the court should try to reach the public on their terms. Supreme Court opinions at their best are written both for the lawyers and for the non-lawyers. The justices should strive to explain what they're doing, not to shape their opinions to suit the people, but to try to take the people seriously and explain their decisions to the people. I, I always worry about the 
the the lawyers who think the Supreme Court just needs to talk to other lawyers and mm-hmm. and really not care about the people. I think the the court should respect the people and explain their decisions to them in plain terms that, that the American people can understand. Whether the people agree with them or not, that's that's not the court's concern. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, they sh- they should. But also, one other way that they should take the public's opinion seriously is the the justices should remember that in public they embody the court in front of the people. And I think they, in the way that the justices interact with each other, in the way they carry themselves in public, mm-hmm. that's incredibly important. And I think that, that years ago when I was newer here and I had a, a podcast of my own here, I did a interview with a law professor who wrote an article about the celebrity culture around justices, mm-hmm. RBG. Even justices I love, like Justice Scalia, he was kind of a celebrity. We should, the justices should take care to, to, to not allow their, like, the way they talk about things to sort of miscolor the people's understanding about what the court is doing. But, but Adam, the, the key thing that justices do is make decisions and write opinions. Mm-hmm. And what I told the students here at AEI the other day is I said, read the opinions. Yeah. Read the opinions. Look for, make up your own mind. And I think it's very hard to read the opinions of, of this term and not see that it's nine people struggling hard yeah. and thoughtfully and writing clearly and, 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 and in some cases with some passion about hard issues. And I think they acquit themselves very well. And that, mm-hmm. and that general opinion of the court is, is calling them as they see them in a direct and straightforward way. And they're explaining themselves. You have to read the opinions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I think that, you know, I, that's... If you do that, I don't see how you come away not feeling as if it's it's a it's a really it's an institution that is important and significant and credible and and is and is staffed in the nine justices by serious people. I I was I'm reminded of you yeah. know the great lines from Succession, <laughs> when Brian Cox says to his kids, "I love you, but you're not, not serious, serious people." people. Yeah. yeah, the nine members of the Supreme Court are serious people. They are, and yeah. with the one the the one downside was the dissents in the affirmative action case, especially. I'm not sure which one was worse or the other, but it seemed to me they got to be a little bit op-ed like, you know, a polemic, and they got a lot of criticism from the right, and and they got a lot of criticism from the from the members of the majority. How did you see that Mm -hmm. dynamic? And also, I I asked you at breakfast the other day, did Justice Kagan have to sign them? And and you said, yes, you probably did. Well, yeah, that's that's a fair point. You know, could she have just said, I dissent without joining an opinion? Technically, she could have. That's really not done anymore. Could she have written her own dissent? Yeah, of course. But there are just now the three justices in dissent a lot. So they're not, practically speaking, they're not going to be able to dissent individually from every case. They're going to have to pick and choose. Mm-hmm. And so I, for them, I don't read too much into them joining each other's dissents in those cases where maybe only one or two dissenting opinions are going to come out. But yeah, I didn't like, I was, I was not a great fan of Sotomayor's dissent in the affirmative action case. Dahlia Lithwick at Slate she said the three just the three dissenting justices are pursuing three very different approaches. Sotomayor is sort of a cultural political approach. Kagan is an institutional approach. That's her rhetoric. And Jackson in the affirmative action case is trying to offer her own version of textualism or originalism. And as I said in the dispatch, you know, actually Scalia did all three of those things. And that was part of their power was that he was able to write in all three of those registers culturally, institutionally, and legalistically and bring them all together in one. 
And so I don't mind the justices getting a little colorful in their opinions, but when it's totally divorced from like a real legal analysis, that's where you have real problems. And with all due respect, I think Sotomayor's dissent ranged a little bit too close to, to that. Okay, let's finish with just one more thing. And you said it, you finished your, maybe you said this already, but 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 tell us, in your article in the dispatch, you, you closed with a, a paragraph about Justice Thomas's opinion. Do you, yeah. What, what, tell us what you were trying to say there. So when before Justice Thomas was a justice, before he was even a judge, he was the chairman of the Equal Employment and Opportunity Commission. And while he was there, he was tutored by two, two, two students of Harry Jaffa, Ken Masugi and John Marini. And Justice Tom, then Chairman Thomas was very, very interested in first principles of American government. And he wrote these three essays that were just fascinating. One for the Howard Law Journal. And I can't remember the, the second one. I can't remember where it was published. And then the third was in a book about by the Cato Institute about the, the aftermath of the Reagan administration. And in these three essays, Justice Thomas writes very, very eloquently about how to understand the relationship between the Constitution and the Declaration that preceded it, the 14th Amendment, and sort of the through line of American history. And those were just beautiful essays. The, the One of the Cato book, by the way, it's not really available anywhere online, so it's kind of a lost classic. The themes he raised in those essays he's pursued throughout his career. And one of the really beautiful things about his concurring opinion in the affirmative action cases was that it was the culmination of those themes. I think in the piece I described it as his valedictory. Mm-hmm. And no matter how long Justice Thomas stays on the court, it's hard for me to imagine that at the end of it all, when he retires, that there will be another opinion that's taken to be the embodiment of his jurisprudence his and his, his understanding of American principles than this opinion. Mm-hmm. It's also personal. I mean, he, yeah. he writes about his own, his own life and his own upbringing. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I think it's a seminal document. He read it from the bench. And he read it from the bench, which he, which was good, which was also powerful. I bet it would have been something to be in the court for that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been a great conversation, Adam. We love having you, and thank you very much. Thanks. Maybe I'll see you next year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Listeners, see you next time. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at aei.org.